0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all of the time that we've been able to spend together reading through this remarkable book. And Lord, we pray that you would use this book to continue to draw us more and more deeply into the things of your kingdom, to stretch our minds, to help us to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would be with us and guide us in this time tonight. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, going to begin as usual with uh, saying our verse together from 2 Peter. Uh, you may find, if you've been saying this every week, that you've got it memorized. So uh, that might be an extra side benefit for no extra charge. Uh, from this class. So let's say this together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us us. his precious and very great great promises, promises. so that through them them. you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." So many deep truths in there that we could talk about. Um, Just quickly about how to approach this class, we still are getting new people, believe it or not, even right here at the end. Uh, You can be on the beach, which at this point means when you go back um, and listen to the sessions that you missed, uh, that you can just listen, you can do whatever, you can be doing your dishes, you can be lying in the sun by the pool, uh, whatever you would like to do, and just absorb as much or as little as you want. Or you can snorkel, uh, pay attention deeply to those things that are of particular interest, or you can scuba dive going deep, reading all the book recommendations, listening to the music. And if you are not on my email list, please uh, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and shoot us a note and we will get you signed up so that you can get those resources. And again, if you are new and you're getting ready to start out reading Mere Christianity, uh, please do not sit in your favorite chair and read it all in a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I strongly encourage you to read out loud do just one chapter at a time and use the C.S. Lewis Doodle on YouTube, which is a great resource uh, for explaining things that sometimes can be a little tricky. So um, I'm gonna see if I can get the music to work here. We'll see what happens with that. Let's see whether anyone can recognize what this is. If you think you know what it is, um, shoot me a text. This one might stump you. just like the other 12. (laughs) All right, I am not seeing any chats this time. So uh, I think I might finally have stumped you Uh, with this one. This one is a little obscure, I will admit that, uh, but it was so appropriate for tonight. It is a 16th century uh, motet, and the uh, setting is by a composer named Shepherd, and he wrote this for the Easter anthems for the new, at that point, 1549 Book of Common Prayer. And the Easter anthem Um, that's in that prayer book. This is the text. And I'm just going to read this to you because it relates to what we'll hear about later tonight. Christ, Christ rising from the dead now dieth not. Death from henceforth hath no power upon him. For in that he died, he died but once to put away sin. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And so likewise, count yourselves dead unto sin, but living unto God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Alleluia, Christ is risen again, the first fruits of them that sleep. For seeing that by man came death, by man also cometh the resurrection of the dead. For as by Adam, all men do die. So by Christ, all men shall be restored to life. Hallelujah. So uh, that is a great text, uh, and it's all about that Christ life, that Zoe uh, that he so longs to give us. So, quick review of context. It's still 1944 before D Day. Uh, just a quick word. We just observed uh, the anniversary of D Day. I would encourage you to go back and read some of the articles and watch some of the film clips about that, it will give you a sense of the context of this book. So England is still at war. Um, De Gaulle has just gone into France to help mobilize the resistance. There's some signs of hope, but it's still pretty dark. So Lewis is being cajoled into uh, these talks and he's probably feeling greatly relieved that he's gotten to the end of them and is not gonna have to be going to Oxford in the middle of the, um, from Oxford to London in the middle of the night anymore. Uh, They are right at the end of term time um, in Oxford when this is happening. So uh, this is in the late spring of 1944, and I wanna just run through the implications um, from the first uh, chapters out of this uh, book four. There's so much to retain out of this book, which is why it's a book you're just gonna have to read over and over and over again. So quickly prayerfully lean into understanding your faith and the theology behind it, not just as good advice, but as life-changing and transformational. And a big book plug here for Simply Good News by Bishop Tom Wright, such an excellent book that will be very encouraging to you. Secondly, understand the difference between BIOS and Zoe and ensure you're nourishing Zoe daily, just as you do BIOS. Don't just be eating three meals a day for your body. Be thinking about what are the meals for your soul, for your spiritual life in Christ every day. And then thirdly, the whole purpose for which we exist is to be taken into the life of God, cultivating habits to reinforce that reality, not to become so involved in this world that we begin to feel too at home here. And fourthly, seek God together and deep fellowship with other believers. Uh, This is so important. Christianity is not meant to be lived alone. And then the third and fourth chapter, um, these are the ones that were maybe a little bit mind blowing for some people, very abstract, but uh, I find them to be very helpful. Uh, First, cultivate an understanding that God's time and our time are not the same. Consciously embrace and maintain an eternal kingdom perspective. It's like that old phrase that used to be around when I was in a Christian fellowship at university back in the 80s, what will it matter in a hundred years anyway? Um, That's a good filter for looking at what your priorities are. The third thing, draw near to the life-giving fountain of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that great wellspring of life and a joy that's in the center of all reality, and that as we draw near to that thing that has life in it, that life will overflow to us. And that this great quotation from John Flavel, all that delights you in earthly things can never satisfy you, for all of your desires are in God. The comforts you have here are only drops in flaming, not satisfying the appetites of your soul, but the lamb will lead you to fountains of living water. It's a beautiful truth. And then from chapters five, six, and seven, cultivate a sense of wonder about the incarnation. It is all too easy as a Christian to take the incarnation for granted. Uh, It's always been part of the framework uh, for those of us living in this uh, 21st century But the important thing for Christians is to never take that for granted, to think about what it would have been like if Jesus had not come, and then to consider and rejoice in Christ as the first fruits of that new Zoe life. That Christ, just as that music just was telling us, is the first fruits. He's the new man, the one who has that resurrected. Zoe life that draws all of humanity up into it. And then thirdly, practice a biblical appreciation for the diversity of God's creation and the body of Christ. That God has made all of us different. We've all been made with different gifts. We've been made so we look different. We have different abilities. And that, that is all to the good. And together, we are so much stronger than any one of us would be as an individual. Fourthly, consider daily what you're choosing to put off and put on. And Lewis uses the metaphor of getting dressed and that's exactly right because the Greek word uh, in all those places in Ephesians and Colossians about putting off certain things and putting on is exactly the same as for clothing. So we need to think about how we dress ourselves spiritually each day. And just like in the screw tape class, Uh, Part of that dressing is putting on the whole armor of God every day. And then to hunger for transformation, to remember that we are not saved just to be left the way we are, uh, but we've been saved from something for something. And that for something is to be transformed into the image of Christ and to be used for his glory. And then last week, um, chapters eight and nine uh, first live into the reality that Christianity is not at its core about being good, but about dying to yourself and receiving new life in Christ. Now there's nothing wrong with being good, let me hasten to say, but if we ever start thinking that that's the point, we will have totally missed the boat. And then secondly, following Christ is a daily decision and battle. And remember there's that great quotation where Lewis says the point comes uh, every morning when you wake up and all of the concerns and desires and demons of the day all come rushing at you and want you to embrace them. And that the first act of will each day has to be to stuff all of them back down and to seek after Christ instead. Thirdly, to keep radically focused on the main thing. The purpose of life is to follow Christ, to become like him, and to draw others to him. And remember how we talked about following is so proactive that if you're following a car that's supposed to be leading you to a destination you've never been to before, and you're in heavy traffic in a place you know nothing about, you are going to be a hundred percent focused on following and not being distracted, and that's the way we need to be in our spiritual lives. Fourthly, proactively continue to in seeking to grow in discipleship, and beware thinking that you have arrived. And this uh, parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector is so apt on that point. It's all too easy for us to start thinking, well i have gotten very mature and my faith in christ and those other little people over there well they're just not at my point yet and so i can just sit back and relax because i've already been in so many bible studies well that is absolutely antithetical to what christ calls us to we are called to continually be seeking to grow and lewis had that analogy about the egg and he says the egg can't just go on being an egg. If it doesn't hatch, it's gonna rot and get stinky. It's the same thing for us. We have to be growing toward uh, that hatching. And then fifthly rejoice in the hope we have in Christ that we will be transformed. Christians of all people should be people that are full of hope, even when we are living in days that may seem dark and when we're tempted to despair. But remember, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world and that we must be showing hope because of who Jesus is. And if we are living in despair, Satan has won the battle. And we have this hope that Christ is gonna transform us to be like him and the fullness of what that means, which is a great miracle and just a beautiful thing to think about. So remember those things as you walk through each week. So that brings us to this week's chapter uh, Nice People or New Men. And I want to just say before we get into this, there's nothing wrong with being nice. I applaud being nice, in fact, but that is not what following Jesus is all about. It is hopefully a byproduct of that, but that's not our goal. So Lewis starts off saying he meant what he said, uh, that those who put themselves in his hands will become perfect as he is perfect, perfect in love, wisdom, joy, beauty, and immortality. The change will not be completed in this life for death is an important part of the treatment how far the change will have gone before death in any particular Christian is uncertain. If Christianity is true, why aren't all Christians obviously nicer than all non-Christians? This reminds me of, we used to go to a restaurant owned by a Jewish friend of mine after church every Sunday. And she would ask me, why is it that so often the people that come here after church are the most difficult people I have to deal with all week? Ooh, ouch. So Lewis says, what lies behind that question is partly something very reasonable and partly something not reasonable at all. The reasonable part is this, if conversion to Christianity makes no improvement in a man's outward actions, if he's still just as snobbish, spiteful, envious or ambitious as he was before, then I think we must suspect his conversion was largely imaginary. And after one's original conversion, every time one thinks he's made an advance, that is the test to apply. Fine feelings, new insights, greater interest in religion mean nothing unless they make our actual behavior better. Just as in an illness, feeling better is not much good if the thermometer shows your temperature is still going up. In that sense, the outer world is quite right to judge Christianity by its results. Christ told us to judge by results. A tree is known by its fruit, or as we say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. When we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world, just like those people in the restaurant. The wartime posters told us careless talk costs lives. It's equally true that careless lives cost talk. Our careless lives set the outer world talking and we give them grounds for talking in a way that throws doubt on the truth of Christianity itself. Consequently, it's not much use trying to make judgments about Christians and non-Christians in the mass. If you wanna compare the bad Christian and the good atheist, you must think about two real specimens whom you've actually met. Even then we must be careful to ask the right question. If Christianity is true, then it ought to follow A, that any Christian will be nicer than the same person would be if he were not a Christian and B, that any man who becomes a Christian will be nicer than he was before. So some analogies here. In the same way, if the advertisements of white smiles toothpaste are true, it ought to follow that anyone who uses it will have better teeth than the same person would have had if he didn't use it. And that if anyone begins to use it, his teeth will improve. But to point out that I who use white smiles and also have inherited bad teeth from my parents have not got as fine a set as some healthy young man who's never used toothpaste at all does not by itself prove the advertisements are untrue. Christian Miss Bates may have an unkinder tongue than unbelieving Dick Furkin. That by itself does not tell us whether Christianity works. The question is what Miss Bates tongue would be like if she were not a Christian, or what Dick would be like if he became one. Miss Bates and Dick, as a result of natural causes and early upbringing, have certain temperaments. And always, of course, there are a great many people who are just confused in mind and have a lot of inconsistent beliefs jumbled up altogether. Consequently, it's not much use trying to make judgments about Christians and non-Christians in the mass. If you wanna compare, you have to compare people who are actual real specimens. So jumping back on down here, since we've got some duplication in the PowerPoint, uh, Miss Bates may have an unkinder tongue and we wanna see what Bates tongue would be like if she were not a Christian and what Dick's would be like if he did become one. Ms. Bates puts both temperaments Sorry, Miss Bates and Dick as a result of natural causes and early upbringing have certain temperaments. Christianity professes to put both temperaments under new management if they will allow it to do so. What you have a right to ask is whether that management if allowed to take over improves the concern. Everyone knows that what's being managed in Dick Firkin's case is much nicer than what's being managed in Miss Bates's. That is not the point. To judge the management of a factory, you must consider not only the output, but the plant. Considering the plant at factory A, it may be a wonder that it turns out anything at all. Considering the first class outfit at the plant at factory A, sorry, but considering the first class outfit at factory B, its output, though high, may be a great deal lower than it ought to be. No doubt the good manager at factory A is going to put in new machinery as soon as he can, but that takes time. In the meantime, low output does not prove he's a failure. And this reminds me, back when we used to own our bed and breakfast, we used to take our sheets, which were very fine, high thread count cotton sheets, to a laundry, um, because this laundry had not only uh, good washing facilities, but a mangle where they would be able to Iron these sheets beautifully and they did a great job but boy Copelston's cleaners on upper meeting street looked like something out of a third world country it was amazing that in that building they could produce anything that came out clean but the people that worked there were really good and that's just what Lewis is talking about here he says now let's go a little deeper the manager is going to put in new machinery before Christ is finished with Miss Bates she's going to be very nice indeed. But if we left it at that, it would sound as though Christ's only aim was to pull Miss Bates up to the same level on which Dick had been all along. We've been talking in fact, as if Dick were all right. As if Christianity was something nasty people needed and nice ones could afford to do without. And as if niceness was all that God cared about. But this would be a fatal mistake. This is why we have to contrast niceness or salvation as the goal. The truth is that in God's eyes, Dick Furkin needs saving every bit as much and more in one sense I will explain in a moment. Niceness hardly comes into the question. You cannot expect God to look at Dick's placid temper, temper and friendly disposition exactly as we do. Those things result from natural causes which God himself creates. Being merely temperamental, they will all disappear if Dick's digestion alters. The niceness, in fact, is God's gift to Dick, not Dick's gift to God. In the same way, God has allowed natural causes working in a world spoiled by centuries of sin to produce in Miss Bates the narrow mind and jangled nerves which account for most of her nastiness. He intends in his own good time to set that part of her right, but that is not for God, the critical part of the business. It presents no difficulties. It's not what he's anxious about. What he's watching and waiting and working for is something that is not easy even for God because from the nature of the case, even he cannot produce it by a mere act of power. He's waiting and watching for it, both in Miss Bates and in Dick Furkin. It is something they freely can give him or freely refuse not to give him. Will they or will they not turn to him and thus fulfill the only purpose for which they were created? Their free will is trembling inside them like the needle of a compass, But this is a needle that can choose. It can point to its true north, but it need not. Will the needle swing around and settle and point to God? He can help it to do so, but he cannot force it. He cannot, so to speak, put out his own hand and pull it into the right position, for then it would not be free will anymore. Will it point north? That is the question on which all hangs. Will Miss Bates and Dick offer their natures to God? The question whether the natures they offer or withhold are at that moment nice or nasty ones is of secondary importance. God can see to that part of the problem. Do not misunderstand me. Of course, God regards a nasty nature as a bad and deplorable thing. And of course he regards a nice nature as a good thing. Good like bread or sunshine or water. But these are good things which he gives and we receive. He created dick sound nerves and good digestion. And there's plenty more where they came from. It cost God nothing as far as we know to create nice things but to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. And because they are wills, they can in nice people just as much in nasty ones refuse his request and then because that niceness in dick was merely part of nature it will all go to pieces in the end nature herself will all pass away natural causes come together in dick to make a pleasant psychological pattern just as they come together in a sunset to make a pleasant pattern of colors presently for that is how nature works they will fall apart again and the pattern in both cases will disappear. Dick has had the chance to turn that momentary pattern into the beauty of an eternal spirit, and he has not taken it. There's a paradox here. As long as Dick does not turn to God, he thinks his niceness is his own possession. And just as long as he thinks that, it is not his own. It is when Dick realizes That his niceness is not his own, but a gift from God. And when he offers it back to God, it is just then that it begins to be really his own. For now, Dick is beginning to take a share in his own creation. The only things we can keep are the things we give freely to God. What we try to keep for ourselves is just what we are sure to lose like that quotation from the end that we say every week. We must not be surprised if we find among the Christians some people who are still nasty, awful people. Certainly not us, right? Or maybe so. There is, even when you come to think it over, a reason why nasty people might be expected to turn to Christ in greater numbers than nice ones. That was what people objected to about Christ during his life on earth. He seemed to attract such awful people, not people one would invite to tea. That is what people still object to and always will. Do you not see why Christ said, blessed are the poor and how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. And no doubt he primarily meant the economically rich and economically poor. But do not his words also apply to another kind of riches and poverty? One of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give, and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. Now, quite plainly, natural gifts carry them with them a similar danger. If you have sound nerves and intelligence and health and popularity and a good upbringing, you are likely to be quite satisfied with your character as it is. Why drag God into it, you may ask? Often people who have all these natural kinds of goodness cannot be brought to recognize their need for Christ at all until one day, The natural goodness lets them down and their self-satisfaction is shattered. In other words, it's hard for those who are rich in this sense to enter the kingdom. It is very different for the nasty people, the little, low, timid, warped, thin-blooded, lonely people, or the passionate, sensual, unbalanced people. If they make any attempt at goodness at all, they learn in double-quick time that they need help. It is Christ or nothing for them. It is taking up the cross and following or else despair. And just a little book plug here, if you want something deep and heavy to read during the summer, uh, not a beach read, pull out Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Uh, It is a great parable about exactly this point where the awful people who turn to Christ end up being the only hope and that whole story, and where the uh, prostitute is the one who quotes scriptures to lead the protagonist toward Jesus. Lost sheep. These people are the lost sheep. He came specially to find them. They are, in one very real and terrible sense, the poor. He blessed them. They are the awful set he goes about with. And of course, the Pharisees say still, as they said from the first, if there are anything in Christianity, those people would not be Christians. So warning or encouragement, there's either warning or encouragement here for every one of us. If you are a nice person, if virtue comes easily to you, beware, much is expected from those to whom much is given. Do not mistake for your own merits what are really God's gifts to you through nature. And if you are contented with simply being nice, you are still a rebel. And all those gifts will only make your fall more terrible, your corruption more complicated, your bad example more disastrous. The devil was an archangel once, His natural gifts were as far above yours as yours are above those of a chimpanzee. But if you are a poor creature, poisoned by a wretched upbringing and some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends, do not despair. Jesus knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you're trying to drive. Keep on, do what you can. One day, perhaps in another world, but perhaps far sooner than that, he will fling that machine on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you have learned your driving in a hard school. Some of the last will be first, and some of the first will be last. Oh, wait, Jesus said that, didn't he? Niceness, wholesome, integrated personality, is an excellent thing, but we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption. The redemption always improves people even here and now and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. This is so important because if it were only about being nice, there's no reason that Jesus would have needed to die on the cross. Lewis now uses the analogy of the winged horse, uh, which also shows up in Narnia. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it's got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow when it cannot do so. And at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they are going to be wings, may even give it an awkward appearance. If what you want is an argument against Christianity, and I well remember how eagerly I looked for such arguments when I began to be afraid it was true, you can easily find some stupid and unsatisfactory Christian and say, so there's your boasted new man, give me the old kind. But if once you have begun to see that Christianity is on other grounds, probable, You will know in your heart that this is only evading the issue. What can you tell of other souls, of their temptations, their opportunities, their struggles? One soul in the whole creation you do know, and it is the only one which God has placed in your hands. If there is a God, you are, in a sense, alone with him. You cannot put him off with speculations about your next-door neighbors or memories of what you've read in books. What will all that chatter and hearsay count? Will you even be able to remember it when the anesthetic fog, which we call nature or the real world fades away and the presence in which you have always stood becomes palpable, immediate and unavoidable. That whole idea of what it means to come and not see through a glass darkly anymore, but to see face to face and the presence of Christ, which strips away all pretense and leaves us fully exposed. So the last chapter, the new men. In the last chapter, I compared Christ's work of making new men to the process of turning a horse into a winged creature. I used that extreme example in order to emphasize the point that it is not mere improvement, but transformation. Perhaps a modern man can understand the Christian idea best if he takes it in connection with evolution. Everyone now knows about evolution, though of course some educated people disbelieve it. Everyone has been told that man has evolved from lower types of life. Consequently, people often wonder, what is the next step? When is the next thing beyond man going to appear? Imaginative writers try sometimes to picture this next step, the Superman as they call him, but they usually only succeed in picturing someone a good deal nastier than man as we know him, and then try to make up for that by sticking on extra legs or arms. Marvel Comics, anyone? But supposing the next step was to be something even more different from the earlier steps than they ever dreamed of. The stream of evolution was not going to flow on in the direction in which he saw it flowing. It was in fact going to take a sharp bend. Now, it seems to me that most of the popular guesses at the next step are making just the same sort of mistake. People see, or at any rate they think they see, men developing greater brains and getting greater mastery over nature. And because they think the streams flowing in that direction, They imagine it will go on flowing in that direction, but I cannot help thinking that the next step will be really news. It will go off in a direction you could never have dreamed of. I should expect not merely change, but a new method of producing the change. I should expect the next stage in evolution not to be a stage in evolution at all, should expect the evolution itself as a method of producing change will be superseded. And finally, I should not be surprised if when the thing happened, very few people noticed that it was happening. So the Christian view, if you care to talk in these terms, the Christian view is precisely that the next step has already appeared and it is really new. It's not a change from brainy men to brainier men. It's a change that goes off in a totally different direction, a change from being creatures of God to being sons of God. Remember back where Lewis was talking about the difference between being made by God like a sculpture or being begotten by God, something alive and full of the life of the Trinity. The first instance appeared in Palestine 2,000 years ago In a sense, the change is not evolution at all because it is not something arising out of the natural process of events, but something coming into nature from outside. In fact, this new step differs from all previous ones, not only in coming from outside nature, but in several other ways as well. At the earlier stages, living organisms have had either no choice or very little choice about taking the new step. Progress was, in the main, something that happened to them, not something that they did. But this new step, the step from being creatures to being sons, is voluntary. It is not voluntary in the sense that we of ourselves could have chosen to take it or could even have imagined it, but it is voluntary in the sense that when it is offered to us, we can refuse it. We can, if we please, shrink back. We can dig in our heels and let the new humanity go on without us. Christ, the first fruits. I have called Christ the first instance of the new man. But of course, he is something much more than that. He is not merely a new man, one specimen of the species, but the new man. As the scriptures say, he is the firstborn of this new type of brothers. He is the origin and center and life of all the new men. He came into the created universe of his own will, bringing with him the Zoe, the new life. I mean, new to us in its own place in the Trinity. Zoe has existed forever and ever. And he transmits it, this Zoe life, not by heredity, but by what I've called good infection. Everyone who gets it, gets it by personal contact with him. Other men become new by being in him as he is the firstborn of this new resurrected life. This step has taken a different speed from all previous ones. Compared with the development of man on this planet, the diffusion of Christianity over the whole human race seems to go like a flash of lightning. For 2000 years, is almost nothing in the history of the universe. Again and again, the outside world has thought Christianity was dying. Dying by persecutions from without or corruptions from within. By the rise of Mohammedanism, the rise of the physical sciences, the rise of great anti-Christian revolutionary movements. But every time, the world has been disappointed. Its first disappointment was over the crucifixion. The man came to life again. They keep on killing the thing that he started. And each time, just as they are patting down the earth on its grave, they suddenly hear that it is still alive and has even broken out in some new place. No wonder they hate us higher stakes, for now the critical moment where God has guided nature up to the point of producing creatures which can, if they will, be taken right out of nature, be turned into gods. In a way, this is like the crisis of birth. Until we rise and follow Christ, we are still parts of nature, still in the womb of our great mother. Her pregnancy has been long and painful and anxious. The great moment has come. Everything's ready. The doctor has arrived. Will the birth go off all right? In an ordinary birth, the baby has not much choice about it. Here it has. I wonder what an ordinary baby would do if it had the choice. It might prefer to stay in the dark and warmth and safety of the womb. For of course, it would think the womb meant safety. That would be just where it was wrong. For if it stays there, it will die. On this view, the thing has happened. The new step has been taken and is being taken. Already the new men are dotted here and there all over the earth. Some as I've admitted are still hardly recognizable but others can be recognized. Every now and then one meets them. Their very voices and faces are different from ours. Stronger, quieter, happier more radiant. They begin where most of us leave off. They are, I say, recognizable, but you must know what to look for. They will not be very like the idea of religious people, which you form from your general reading. They do not draw attention to themselves. You tend to think that you're being kind to them when they are really being kind to you. They love you more than other men do, but they need you less they will usually seem to have a lot of time. You will wonder where it comes from. When you've recognized one of them, you will recognize the next one much more easily. And I strongly suspect, but how should I know that they recognize one another immediately and infallibly across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, or even of creeds. And that way to become holy is rather like joining a secret society. To put it at the very lowest, it must be great fun, but you must not imagine that the new men are in the ordinary sense all alike. The section reminds me of that great old hymn, I sing a song of the saints of God and all the different people in there that are saints, whether it's kings or queens or priests or teachers or shepherdesses or whatever it might be. To become new men, means losing what we now call ourselves. Out of ourselves into Christ, we must go. His will is to become ours. And we are to think his thoughts, to have the mind of Christ as the Bible says. And if Christ is one, and if he is thus to be in us all, shall we not be all exactly the same? It certainly sounds like it, but in fact, it's not so. Imagine a lot of people who've always lived in the dark You come and try to describe to them what light is like. You might tell them that if they come into the light, that same light would fall on them all and they would all reflect it and thus become what we call visible. Is it not possible that they would imagine since they're all receiving the same light and all reacting to it in the same way that is reflecting it, that they would all look alike? Whereas you and I know that the light will in fact bring up or show up how very different they are. Suppose one person who knew nothing about salt. You give him a pinch to taste and he experiences a particular strong, sharp taste. You then tell him your country people use salt in all their cookery. Might he not reply in that case, I suppose all your dishes taste exactly the same because the taste of that stuff you've just given me is so strong that it will kill the taste of everything else. But you and I know the real effect of salt is exactly the opposite. So far from killing the taste of the egg and the tripe and the cabbage, it actually brings it out. They do not show their real taste till you've added the salt. It's something like that with Christ and us. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There's so much of him that millions and millions of little Christ, all different, will still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. And that since our real selves are waiting for us in him. It's no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. Propaganda will be the real origin of what I regard as my own personal political ideals. I'm not in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. At the beginning, I said there were personalities in God. I will go further now. There are no real personalities anywhere else. Until you've given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. Sameness is to be found most among the most natural men, not among those who surrendered to Christ. How monotonously alike the great tyrants and conquerors have been. How gloriously different are the saints. But there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your personality is what you're bothering about, you're not going to Him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ and also yours, and yours just because it's His, will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you are looking for Him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man uh, will ever be original, whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring tuppence about how often it's told before, you will nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. This principle runs through life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you've not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in." Lewis ends there, but I wanna just point out a couple of implications. First, keep clear at all times that being a Christian is not about what our culture thinks of as niceness, but about being transformed into Christ's image. As 1 Corinthians says, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And secondly, be vigilant, lest material wealth or natural gifts lead you to be satisfied that you are a good person, who does not need to rely on God. And this has been a problem ever since Old Testament days and that great chapter Deuteronomy 6, sorry, that's a misprint there where it says 16. And when the Lord, your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Thirdly, keep clear the distinction between moral improvement and redemption. As it says in Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, Christ died for our redemption to save us, to make us new, not to make us nice. And fourthly, live into the paradoxical reality that the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Christ take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. And that brings us back again to Colossians 3.1. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So uh, a couple of summer recommendations. Um, I'm gonna come back to that. Uh, Let's say this verse together um, from the end of the chapter uh, for this one last time. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, nothing that you've not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the deep truth that our real selves are found only in you, and Lord, that it is when we cast away and crucify the old self through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we begin to live into that beautiful Zoe Trinity fountain of everlasting, eternal, joyous life that you want to pour into us. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be satisfied with the things of this world, but that we would hunger and thirst after you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.